Thank you, praise team. I appreciate you guys filling in so well these past several weeks as I have preached through the book of Jonah. This is the last of this series. And this series is attached to one of my seminary classes, and Pastor Mark gets to be my field supervisor for this. And uh, he told me this morning that if I do really well today, I'm in for a solid B minus. Just kidding. Just kidding. Uh, How many of you have played Monopoly before? Okay, yeah, we're familiar with this game. I love Monopoly. I I love classic Monopoly, not those weird versions they've come out with. You know, like Hunger Games Monopoly, Despicable Me Monopoly. You know, and I was preparing this sermon, I thought to myself, what are the weirdest versions that they've come up with? And so I did a Google search. Here's some of what I found. Number one, uh, Disney villain Monopoly. Okay, you can go into the coat business with Cruella DeVille. Of course, she only sells size small. Why? It's a small world after... <laughs> Bad joke. I'm just trying to set the tone for the rest of the sermon. Uh, I don't know why Disney karaoke is not a thing. There's a whole skill set I have going to waste. Um, Next up, bass fishing monopoly. Don't want to go fishing? Just enjoy it from the comfort of home. Stay in the air conditioning. Now they just need to make one for gym memberships. Best workout ever, right? All right, next. um, Walking dead monopoly. I'm dying to play that. Somebody, you're like, can I still catch the sermon over at Gateway? <laughs> Monopoly, horse lovers edition. Not to be outdone by cat lovers edition. Not even going there. Uh, ready for this? Monopoly, one direction version. Let's go crazy, 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 bankrupting all of our friends and loved ones. Yes. And we have World of Warcraft Monopoly. So if you're a nerd, own it. (laughs) Uh, Lastly, Monopoly Sun-Made Collector's Edition. What do you do with that? (laughs) I guess if that excites you, you need to get a life, right? Uh, I'm going to share with you my secret to Monopoly. Okay, this is my trade secret, you know. With great power comes great responsibility. Here it is. At the beginning of the game, buy every piece of property your piece touches without completely overextending your cash supply because in the end, the people with property become the haves and the people without or just cash become the have-nots. Monopoly is what they call a zero-sum game. And what that means is that there are limited resources, and the game ends when I own it all, and everyone else owns nothing, right? They're just serfs to the Monopoly Lord. It's a cutthroat game. There are never two winners at Monopoly. It's me or them. So hold that thought, because we're going to come back to that. Take your Bibles, turn to Jonah chapter 4. The the theme of this series has been the love of God. Over in chapter 1, we saw God's love that pursues us. It pursued Jonah, a disobedient, rebellious prophet, even when he was running away from God. In chapter 2, we saw a love that rescues. 
In Jonah's distress, as he was drowning, he calls out to God in desperation, and God rescues him. Chapter 3, we see a love that relents when Nineveh repents. When Nineveh turned from their sin, God turned away from judgment. And that brings us up to today. Look with me at the last verse of chapter 3, verse 10. It says, when God saw what the Ninevites did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. Now, let's do a quick recap here. The Ninevites were modern-day terrorist, okay, the terrorist of Jonah's day. They had an incredible military, powerful machine that was barbaric and cruel. They were known to skin their enemies alive, torture them in barbarous ways. In fact, depending on when the story of Jonah actually happened within history, it's possible that the Ninevite army, the Assyrian army, was camped outside the borders of Israel ready to pounce. So when God goes to Jonah and says, preach to the Ninevites, no way, he runs. And we spend two chapters doing, dealing with his detour. But when he finally comes to his senses, he obeys God, preaches to the Ninevites, and guess what? They didn't skin him alive. Instead, they listened to him. They believed God. They repented. They called to God for mercy, and God showed them mercy, even to the worst of sinners. What incredible grace. And what we can learn from that is that no matter what you've done, no matter what your past is, there's mercy for you if you ask, if you repent. You see, God does not enjoy judgment. He's always looking for a way out. Never assume you are past the point of redemption. So here's where the story takes a turn. In fact, we could probably end the story right there after chapter 3. In fact, we've dealt with Jonah and his sin. We've dealt with Nineveh and their sin. You know, everyone can live happily ever after. Fairy tale ending. But it doesn't. In fact, it's all the way in chapter 4 that the point of the entire book is brought up. Look at verse 1. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong. And he became angry. He prayed to the Lord, Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? This is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you were a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. What a drama queen. (laughs) Now the truth comes out. We see how deep the rabbit hole goes. The darkness of Jonah's heart is exposed. You see, he didn't want to obey God, not because he was scared, but because he wanted the Ninevites dead. He wanted them wiped off the face of the earth. Every man, every woman, every child, gone. Because Jonah knew that if he obeyed God, they might listen to him. And if they repented, God would have mercy. And that's not what he wanted. Imagine that. A person who is religious on the outside, but inside he is fighting against God and God's mission of mercy. 
Now, I told you at the beginning of this series that God was going to take Jonah on a journey and give him a radical vision of his love, a love without boundaries. So God replies, look at verse 4, but the Lord replied, is it right for you to be angry? And this is the first of many questions that God is going to ask Jonah in this chapter, deep questions, questions that ring out across the centuries and reverberate in our ears today. Is it right for you to be angry? Jonah ignores the question. Look at verse 5. Jonah had gone out and sat down at the place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. See, Jonah's thinking that, you know, God may change his mind about all this. In fact, God might come to his senses and decide to roast Nineveh after all. But God has an object lesson for this prophet, starting in verse 6. Then the Lord God provided a leafy plant and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the plant. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm which chewed the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, it would be better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? It is, he said, and I'm so angry, I wish I were dead. (laughs) Have we entered kindergarten? I do believe Jonah is throwing a temper tantrum, okay? God is trying to teach him a lesson. The desert's hot. So God gives a plant for shade. Next day, God sends a worm. Worm eats the plant. Plant dies. Sun comes up. It's hot. Jonah's dehydrated. Jonah's mad. Mad at God. And God pops the second question. Is it right for you to be angry about the plants? It is. And I'm so angry I wish I were dead. What is it with Jonah wanting to die throughout this book? I can almost hear Gabriel up in heaven going, God, I told you it was a bad idea to send a fish. He's unstable, Lord. (laughs) Why does an angel have an accent? I don't know. Uh, So God pulls the rug out from under Jonah. You see, the first question was, Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the mercy I've shown Nineveh? The second question is, is it right for you to be angry about this plant? God's about to have a mic drop time. Look at verse 10. But the Lord said, You have been concerned about this plant, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and it died overnight. And should I not have concern for this great city of Nineveh? The bottom line, God is cutting to the chase here. And God says, Jonah, you care more about your personal comfort than you dare about about the lives of these people. Jonah, you've drawn a line, and on one side of the line, you've put yourself. On the other side of the line, you've put the Ninevites. And you want me to be kind to you, 
but you don't want me to be kind to them. You want my blessing, but you don't want my blessing to go to them. Mercy, grace, compassion belongs to you, your kind, the Israelites, but not to them and their kind. You think you're better than them. You created a double standard. Jonah, you're a racist. (gasps) And you could almost hear the self-righteous reply of Jonah, I'm not a racist, God. I just want justice. I'm the righteous one. They're the wicked ones. Jonah, do you really have the moral high ground here? We've just spent two chapters dealing with your junk, right? Not only that, there are innocent people in that city. Children, animals whom I'm created, not done anything wrong. Should the innocent die along with the wicked? Especially when the wicked have repented. Now, you may be thinking to yourself, Brian, where are you getting that? I was tracking with you, but look at verse 11. God says, And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and also many animals? Now, there's two ways that we can interpret this passage right here, okay? And I, I really don't care which way. It works either way. But... One interpretation is that the 120,000 people represent the entire population of Nineveh. And thus, the phrase, can't tell their right hand from their left, becomes a way of saying that these people are morally ignorant. That they don't really know what they're doing. They don't have access to God's moral laws like God gave Israel on Mount Sinai through Moses. At very least, they don't really know what they're doing So have some pity on them, at least more pity than the plant. That's one way to interpret it. It has some merit. I don't tend to agree with that interpretation, and here's why. In chapter 3, the people of Nineveh seemed very knowledgeable about their sin. In fact, Jonah didn't even mention their sin, but instinctively they knew to, to quit their violence. They had an idea of right and wrong, so that doesn't quite jive with me. But secondly, God compares this 120,000 group to the animals. And animals are morally neutral. They don't make moral choices between right and wrong. So the comparison's a little bit off. So the second way to interpret it is that the 120,000 people represent the children of Nineveh, making Nineveh a very large city. But the innocent of the city... And so it's not ignorance, but innocence that's at play here. The bottom line, no matter which position you take, God is taking the moral high ground away from Jonah. He's saying, Jonah, you've drawn a line, you put yourself on one side of the line, put the Ninevites on the other, but you can't use the moral high ground as justification. I'm righteous, they're wicked. There are innocent people there, even animals who haven't done anything right or wrong. Jonah, you think God's blessings are exclusive to you. You want the good stuff, but not for them. You think you and your kind deserve the shade tree. They and their kind, they deserve fire and brimstone. Lying, us, them, double standard. And against this idea 
God is trying to teach Jonah that his love is without boundaries. There's no line with God. There is no us versus them with God. All people are equal. All people, all races, all ethnicities have equal access to the cross and to grace and to compassion. There is no line with God. Jesus taught us that our Father in heaven sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous alike. And Jesus used that to teach us that we should love our enemies and do good to those that hate us and pray for them. There is no line with God. So we're going to camp out on this idea for the rest of the sermon. And we're going to pull this concept out of Jonah's day and we're going to put it smack dab in our day. We're going to explore the lines that we've drawn in our culture, ways that we have violated God's love without boundaries. And we draw lines all the time. The lines happen between our nations, between our races, between colors, between political parties, between churches, between groups within the church and our families. We draw lines all the time, us versus them, double standard. And often the reality is we don't really care what happens to them just so long as we get what we want or at least don't have to give up our comfort. So let's start with the international scale, okay, and then we'll, we'll bring it home, okay? On the, on, on the international scale, um, tomorrow's the 4th of July. Uh, it's, it's the day we celebrate America's freedom as a nation. It's a day of honor and pride for our country. This year is also an election year. It's a time that we elect a president, congressmen, other leaders, and those leaders are going to be making policies that will determine America's actions for many years yet to come. Now, it's okay to be patriotic, okay? It's good to love your country, but we have to keep something in perspective. We have to remember Jesus is not an American, It's not that he's anti-America, not at all. It just means that Jesus does not love the citizens of America any more than he loves the citizens of Pakistan, Chile, Nambia. All are his subjects. Jesus is king of the world. His kingdom extends to the ends of the earth. It doesn't stop and start at the Atlantic and Pacific. Revelation describes the church as a multitude from every nation, language, tribe, and tongue. Jesus is king and he invites all people to be his subjects. There's no line with God. And what that means is our loyalty first belongs to Christ. God first, then country. Right? So, when it comes time to cast your vote, we must be sure that we don't support policies that favor America to the deprivation of the rest of the world. Now hear me closely. I'm not saying it's wrong to seek America's good. It's good to seek America's good. And we certainly can't fix the world's problems. But whatever our solutions to the problems that we're dealing with, we have to at least ask the question, how does this affect the other nations around the world? Because that's what the golden rule teaches us, the rule that Christ himself taught us. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. So let's put some teeth on this. Let's, let's, let's 
practical, uh, make this practical today. Um, how about um, the economy? Okay, we all know the economy is a mess. Now, I'm going to disclaimer here. I am not an economic expert by any means. Everyone has these solutions for how they're going to fix the money problems in our nation and around the world. But whatever solution you suggest, you must at least ask the question, how will this solution affect the poor and the least of these around the world? Do we support business practices built on the backs of slaves or people next to slaves around the world? Do we demand fair trade and the like? You see, we cannot focus solely on what is good for America. We at least have to ask the question, what happens to everyone else? How about the issue of warfare? Um, last fall, I was following the Republican presidential debates, and to my horror, I heard a candidate say, in order to deal with terrorism, we must take out the families of terrorists. Not only is that a war crime, but that goes against centuries of Christian thought on just war theory. It's that us versus them mentality. It doesn't matter what happens to them just so long as America is safe. That is immoral. How about immigration? I've heard people say things like, it doesn't matter that there are women and children fleeing for safety. They don't belong here, and we don't want to take the risk. Now, I'm not proposing a simple solution here. There are no simple solutions. In fact, the best solution is probably the one we haven't thought of yet. I'm just saying we have to check our motivations. How about within America? What are the lines we've drawn within America itself? In the last two years, it seems to me that that political tension has just kept building and building. Division between Republican and Democrat. During the debates, not one of the presidential candidates asked the question that I had. And that was, what are they going to do about Congress? We have a divided Congress that doesn't trust one another anymore, that refuses to cooperate or work together, forget the common good. It's what advances my party and its power. What about the issue of health care? That's another mess. I know, the, I know the average family is paying so much for health care. Once again, there, there are all kinds of solutions being tossed around. But as Christians, we at least have to ask this question. How can we make sure the poor of America have access to basic health care? And why do I say that? Because Christians throughout history have led the way in building hospitals for the helpless. That's why we have a St. E's. That's why we have a Baptist over in Beaumont. We've led the way in compassion through history. It's part of our belief in the sanctity of human life. We support life not only inside the womb, but also outside. What about the issue of race? <laughs> Once again, the last couple years, it seems like there's been so much hatred between the black and the white communities. Why is that? 11 a.m. on Sunday mornings is still one of the most segregated hours in the American South. Why is that? What are we doing to heal the rift? A couple weeks ago at the Southern Baptist Convention that met in St. Louis, 
um, they passed the resolution, and the resolution requested that uh, no member of our congregations display the Confederate flag publicly anymore because of the, the connection it has with slavery and racism and desiring to build unity among the body of Christ. Now, we could certainly spend time debating whether or not you know, the symbolism of the Confederate flag really equals slavery or not. We could talk about that. We could talk about whether or not that resolution does anything to actually fix the problem of racism in our communities. But we cannot ignore the issue and pretend it doesn't exist. Let's move on. <laughs> Please do, Brian. Um, how about lines we've drawn in our community? Um, there is a meat processing plant that has recently uh, attempted or is attempting, and it's kind of fuzzy right now, uh, but they would like to come to Kuntz, Texas. And the controversy is that this plant is owned either whole and in part or led by a Muslim man. And when news of this hit Facebook, all kinds of us versus them language was vomited onto the internet. Now, there may be many reasons. Listen closely. There may be many reasons not to support this business from coming in, okay? But one of those reasons cannot be that we don't want their kind here. Since I've been here as a minister for four years now, Coons, Texas has made national news for their cheerleader stance toward Christianity. The eyes of the nation have been upon us. We are known for our faith. Therefore, how we respond to outsiders must, must reflect the love of God, lest we give the world yet another reason to reject the Messiah. And that starts with rejecting all forms of religious discrimination. America was founded by its founding fathers as a neutral zone where all faiths and all religions could worship freely and practice their faith freely. Mark my words, if we support discrimination against Islam today, Christianity will be on the chopping block tomorrow. Let's move this to the church level. Lines, let's skip the question about lines between our denominations or just lines between this church and the church across the street. Skip that. How about lines within our churches? Arguments over, you know, who gets what money from the budget? Who gets what time slot in the church schedule? How much space the ministry gets in the bulletin? One Sunday school class arguing about who gets the room with the window? Do we keep the pews? And then those in favor of not keeping the pews... Here's the problem with the line us them mentality is that we paint ourselves in the best light possible. <laughs> I'm just meant to, I'm just misunderstood. They meant to hurt us. Oh, I'm just trying to do what's best for the church. They're hurting God's kingdom. They can't do anything right and of course we can't do anything wrong. We paint them as if they're all the same, slap labels on them to humanize them. It's amazing the pain throughout history that I've seen people cause when they think they're right, when they think they're on the side of God. 
We gossip about them. We try to recruit people onto our side. And if we don't succeed, we just join another church and start the cycle over again. Where does the monopoly game stop? When will we get out of our trenches, put down our weapons, walk across the battle lines, and love our neighbor as ourselves? Like the Good Samaritan, look past their differentness and see their need. See, the reality is we don't know how the story of Jonah ends. It stops right there with the question, did Jonah get God's point? We don't know. And frankly, it doesn't matter because the author of this little four-chapter book is trying to get us to ask the question of ourselves. Will we embrace God's love without boundaries? Musicians, go ahead and come back up here if you would. I'm going to close with this story. In 1996, the... Ku Klux Klan held a rally in Michigan, and it was a very tense situation. Police were brought in with riot gear, tear gas, in order to form a barrier between the Klan and their rally and the protesters who came out against the Klan. When a voice rang out from the crowd, there's a Klansman among us, and sure enough, a man wearing a shirt with a Confederate flag and an SS tattoo had made his way to the wrong side of the barrier. The people knocked him to the ground, began to kick him and beat him with their signs, all to shouts of, kill the Nazi. At that moment, an 18-year-old African-American girl named Keisha Thomas broke through the crowd and threw herself on top of the man, shielding his body from the blows with her own body. Why would she do that? Why would she put herself at harm's way to defend someone who would probably hurt her if the situation were reversed? Why? Because of Jesus. She was a Christian, and her faith played a part in her, her decision to do this. She said in an interview, I knew what it was like to be hurt. The many times that happened, I wish someone would have stood up for me. Hesha Thomas let the golden rule have an impact on her life. When will we stop seeing them as others and start seeing them as human beings created in God's image, human beings whom Christ died for, human beings deserving of love? Let's bow our heads and close our eyes. As we enter a time of invitation, let me ask you a couple questions. How can your relationships change this week to reflect the love of God? Whether it's conversations 
around the water cooler or on Facebook? How can we infuse gentleness and respect for those who are different? I'm not saying we have to agree with them. Will we at least dialogue and listen with humility? Who is the them in your life that you can stand up for and seek justice for? Is there someone in the church, maybe this church, that you need to go to and apologize to for past words or past actions? Maybe a phone call to a member of a previous church. Repairing the relationship, breaking down the line. Will we embrace God's love without boundaries? Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we we recognize that when we were your enemies, through our rebellion and our own sin, you did not come at us with a club. Rather, you took upon yourself our own flesh. You became one of us. You took our sin and the chastisement for our sin upon yourself and you bled on the cross for our redemption to reconcile us to yourself. Lord Jesus, help us to be imitators of you. Give us grace to be like you. And through that power, bring your healing to our world. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.